Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan 1132. My name is Jim Wittivine. Happy to be here with you once again. And this is episode 17 of the podcast. And today we're going to talk about education and the place of education and the influence of education on our North American society, particularly. And I've been wanting to address this issue on the podcast and, and speak generally about education. Uh, one of the difficulties that I've had with the subject is that it's obviously it's so broad and, and there's so many ways that you can go with it. And I wanted to figure out exactly how I was going to approach the issue. Well, I'm going to do like I normally do, and I'm going to begin with a book. And the book that I'm going to begin with, actually uh, several books by this author that I've read and used, but I'm going to focus on one book in particular. Uh, and the author's name is John Taylor Gatto. And this is one of his books, Dumbing Us Down, uh, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling. And I highly recommend this book. The book that I'm going to be uh, citing in this episode is called The Underground History of American Education. Uh, John Taylor Gatto was a, was a teacher, an American teacher. He passed away in 2018, and he wrote a number of books, and and you could probably pick or choose one of those books that he published and, and uh, just use that book because there's things that are repeated in various books and, and various sections that are, that are repeated in, in these books. Uh, the Underground History of American Education has more detail and has more historical data. Uh, Dumbing Us Down has, uh, is, is shorter, uh, more easily readable, and more accessible uh, so I would recommend for somebody who's interested in the subject to uh, choose and find this book. And I, as I said, I highly recommend it. So first of all, a little bit about John Taylor Gatto. A, a little bit from his own website, uh, Career Highlights. And I'll just read that, what it says on the Career Highlights section on the front page of his website. It says, he climaxed his teaching career as New York State Teacher of the Year after being named New York City Teacher of the Year on three occasions. He quit teaching on the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal in 1991, while still New York State Teacher of the Year, claiming that he was no longer willing to hurt children. Later that year, he was the subject of a show at Carnegie Hall called An Evening with John Taylor Gatto, which launched a career of public speaking in the area of school reform, which has taken Gatto over a million and a half miles in all 50 states and seven foreign countries. In 1992, he was named Secretary of Education in the Libertarian Party Shadow Cabinet, and he has been included in Who's Who in America from 1996 on. In 1997, he was given the Alexis de Tocqueville Award for his contributions to the cause of liberty and was named to the Board of Advisors of the National TV Turnoff Week. Gatto's office is in New York City, was in New York City, uh, his home in Oxford, New York, where he is currently at work on a film about the nature of modern schooling. Obviously, the website hasn't been updated since his passing. For more information about this film, etc., etc., uh, Gatto was married for 40 years to the same woman, had two grown children and a cat. And at that time, he hoped to build a rural retreat and library for the use of families pondering local and personal issues of school reform. And uh, the website, this part of the website concludes by saying that John was not available as a speaker because he had a stroke in 2011. And so some books by John Taylor Gatto, Dumbing Us Down, the book that I just showed you, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling. 
The Exhausted School, night published in 1993, A Different Kind of Teacher, published in 2000, and the book that I'm going to be citing here, The Underground History of American Education, published in 2001. One of the things that I wanted to focus on was an answer to the question, a question which is many times over the past year and a half now with the current situation that we're dealing with, uh, the COVID-19 uh, situation and, and the responses to it. One of the questions that's come up in my mind many times is how is the population so amenable to being manipulated, uh, so unquestioningly obedient, so willing to follow rules that don't make any sense, so willing to go along with the herd, as we've, we've heard before, uh, so willing to subsume our own personal rights for the supposed good of uh, the broader society. What, what's led to that? What, what's led to this, this lack of um, personal desire for personal freedom or a lack of valuing of personal freedom and the, the constant call for everybody to give up their personal rights for the sake of, uh, quote-unquote, the common good. How did this come to pass? How did this come to be so? And thinking about this led me to back to John Taylor Gatto and his works about the history of American education and about the current state of American education. And by extension, we could also say Canadian education and education around the world, because in, in most countries of the world, uh, the, the systems of education have grown out of common roots, uh, from common beginnings, from a common philosophy, and led to what we have now. And so I wanted to go through a little bit of what John Taylor Gatto says in the underground history of American education, uh, starting with a little bit of history about what happened in the United States when compulsory schooling uh, became more and more uh, commonplace in, in, in the country, when, when uh, more and more people were uh, being schooled in, in, uh, in, the, in compulsory education and uh, changes to the educational system. And he goes back to World War II. At the start of World War II, millions of men showed up at registration offices to take low-level academic tests before being inducted. The years of maximum mobilization were 1942 to 1944. The fighting force had been mostly schooled in the 1930s, both those inducted and those turned away. Of the 18 million men that were tested, uh, 17,280,000 of them were judged to have the minimum competence uh, in reading required to be a soldier a 96% literacy rate. This was a 2% fall-off from the 98% rate among volunta voluntary military applicants 10 years earlier. But the dip was so small, it didn't worry anybody. They went from 98% uh, literacy to 96% literacy. So World War II was ended in 1945. Six years later, another war began in Korea. Several million men were tested for military service, but this time 600,000 were rejected. Literacy in the draft pool had dropped to 81%, even though all that was needed to classify a soldier as literate was fourth grade reading proficiency. In the, first, in the few short years from the beginning of World War II to Korea, a terrifying problem of, of adult illiteracy had appeared. 
The Korean War group received most of its schooling in the 1940s and added more years in school with more professionally trained personnel and more scientifically selected textbooks than the World War II men. Yet, it could not read, write, count, speak, or think as well as the earlier, less schooled contingent. Then there's a third group. The Third American War began in the mid-1960s, the Vietnam War. By its end in 1973, the number of men found non-inductible by reason of inability to read safety instructions, interpret road signs, decipher orders, and so on, in other words, the number found illiterate had reached 27% of the total pool. Vietnam-era young men had been schooled in the 1950s and the 1960s, much better schooled than either of the two earlier groups. But the 4% illiteracy of 1941, which had transmuted into the 19% illiteracy of 1952, had now grown into the 27% illiteracy of 1970. Not only had the fraction of competent readers dropped to 73%, but a substantial chunk of even those were only barely adequate. They could not keep abreast of developments by reading a newspaper. They could not read for pleasure. They could not sustain a thought or an argument. They could not write well enough to manage their own affairs without assistance. So we see a definite decline in literacy rates, common literacy rates or functional literacy rates. The ability to understand what you read in a newspaper, the ability to interpret what you're hearing, the, the ability to, to put simple facts together and to reason had dropped sharply because all of these things drop with this functional literacy rate. So what was it? What, what had caused this? And, and there was a book that was published called The Bell Curve, which spoke about the difference in IQ among races. Uh, and so uh, he says, if not heredity... What then? Because the bell curve said that it was heredity that was causing this. It was the fact that there are differences between, between racial groups uh, in IQ, in ability to understand and the ability to learn. Uh, but he says, no, it, it wasn't heredity. We can't say that it was. He says, one change is indisputable, well-documented, and easy to track. During World War II, American public schools massively converted to non-phonetic ways of teaching reading. So sight reading in place of a phonics. On the matter of violence alone, this would seem to have impact. According to the Justice Department, 80% of the incarcerated violent criminal population is illiterate, or nearly so, and 67% of all criminals locked up. There seems to be a direct connection between the humiliation poor readers experience and the life of angry criminals. As reading ability plummeted in America after World War II, crime soared, so did out-of-wedlock births, which doubled in the 1950s and doubled again in the 60s, when bizarre violence for the first time became, became commonplace in daily life. When literacy was first abandoned as a primary goal by schools, white people were in a better position than black people because they inherited a 300-year-old American tradition of learning to read at home by matching spoken sound with letters. Thus, home assistance was able to correct the deficiencies of dumbed-down schools for whites. So the, the, the things that were done, the things that were accomplished at home, made up for the failings of the schools. But, Gatto adds, black people had been forbidden to learn to read under slavery, and as late as 1930 only averaged three, or four, three to four years of schooling. So they were helpless when teachers suddenly stopped teaching children to read since they had no fallback position. 
not helpless because of genetic inferiority, but because they had to trust school authorities to a much greater extent than white people. So that led to growing differences in literacy rates between the white and the black population and various ethnic populations. So changes in the, the structure of studies, changes in the methods that were used, changes in the goals of, uh, of schools were leading to uh, increasingly poor results among students and among graduates. And I believe we still see this today. This, this, the trend continues. So according to the Journal of the American Medical Association, this is from December 1995, 33% of all patients cannot read and understand instructions on how often to take medication, notices about doctor's appointments, consent forms, labels on prescription bottles, insurance forms, and other simple parts of self-care. They are rendered helpless by inability to read. Concerning those behind the nation's prison walls, a population that has tripled since 1980, this is in the United States, the National Center for Education Statistics stated in a 1996 report that 80% of all prisoners could not interpret a bus schedule, understand a news article or warranty instructions, or read maps, schedules, or payroll forms. Nor could they balance a checkbook. 40% could not calculate the cost of a purchase. And Gatto continues, Once upon a time, we were a new nation that allowed ordinary citizens to learn how to read well and encouraged them to read anything they thought would be useful. Close reading of tough-minded writing is still the best, cheapest, and quickest method known for learning to think for yourself. And allow me to emphasize that, because I think this is extremely important and, and worth highlighting once again close reading of tough-minded writing is still the best cheapest and quickest method known for learning to think for yourself it's not uh studying some small thing as you work to get your doctorate uh some some minute aspect of whatever subject it is that you're studying uh it's not going through a course of study but it's actually doing reading yourself and going through books and studying and doing that on your own and wanting to learn and wanting to soak things up and wanting to, to get that information and, and think about it and, uh, and really consider it and read opposing points of view as well. This invitation to commoners extended by America was the most revolutionary pedagogy of all. Now, I'm just going to break in here with my own example. My dad, who passed away last year, he passed away at the age of 82, he had a grade seven education. He immigrated to Canada from Holland uh, as a young teenager. And so he only ended up doing, uh, I'm not sure exactly how many years of school in Canada, but basically a couple years of school in Canada. Uh, and, and so he went to grade seven. But I knew my dad as a reader and not just a reader of simple books, but he, he read The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, other books of that ilk. Uh, and with a grade seven education. And that's just one example of previous generations of men and women who were readers, men and women who in the evening would take up one of these big, thick books. And the Gulag Archipelago is no small book and it's not an easy read. Uh, but they would read those with interest and with facility. They were able to read and they were able to understand. But what I hear 
and I hear this uh, from uh, pastors, and I hear this from uh, office bearers in the church, is that it's becoming more and more difficult, especially to find men who read, Where, whereas reading is one of the most important elements of uh, understanding, of being able to interpret the world, of being able to struggle with concepts and and get make those concepts your own and understand them. So this this problem of functional illiteracy and people who don't read and don't know how to read or or can't uh, retain the information that they read, this is a very serious problem. It's not not only a serious problem in the world, it's also it's especially a serious problem in the church where as I spoke about in the beginning uh, of uh, this podcast in the first episode, I uh, spoke about the, the, the Reformation's emphasis on literacy as being so very important. And, and now this podcast emphasis on cultural literacy. Well, here the, the two things are coming together. So Gatto continues by saying this. He says, reading and rigorous discussion of that reading in a way that obliges you to formulate a position and support it against objections is an operational definition of education in its most fundamental civilized sense. No one can do this very well without learning ways of paying attention, from a knowledge of diction and syntax, figures of speech, etymology, and so on, to a sharp ability to separate the primary from the subordinate. What's important and what's not important? How do we filter that out in our, in our reading? Understanding illusion, master a range of modes of presentation, test truth, and penetrate beyond the obvious to the profound messages of text. Reading, analysis, and discussion are the way we develop reliable judgment, the principal way we come to penetrate covert moments behind the facade of public appearances. Without the ability to read and argue, we're just geese to be plucked. Very wise words here. Without the ability to read and argue, we're just geese to be plucked. We're sitting ducks, to use another bird metaphor. Just as experience is necessary to understand abstraction, so the reverse is true. Experience can only be mastered by extracting general principles out of the mass of details. In the absence of a perfect universal mentor, books and other texts are the best and cheapest stand-ins, always available to those who know where to look. Watching details of an assembly line or a local election unfold isn't very educational unless you have been led in careful ways to analyze the experience. So you can't just learn from experience. You also need to know how to filter that experience, how to interpret that experience, how to analyze it. And you need to use your brain. You need to use your mind to do that. And reading is central, uh, essential to being able to interpret in those ways. So reading is the skeleton key for all who lack a personal tutor of quality, which is most of us. We don't have tutors. We use books. And books, uh, when well used, make very good tutors. So reading teaches nothing more important than the state of mind in which you find yourself absolutely alone with the thoughts of another mind, a matchless form of intimate rapport available only to those with the ability to block out distraction and concentrate. Hence, the urgency of reading well if you read for power. And I, I, I like that expression, reading for power, uh, because it speaks about the, the effect that reading has, that, that the, the knowledge, the skills, 
the understanding, the wisdom gained from reading can have in our life. It leads us uh, from being powerless to having power, from lacking understanding and therefore being lost to having understanding and being able to think for ourselves. Once you trust yourself to, to go mind to mind with great intellects, artists, scientists, warriors, and philosophers, you are finally free. In America, before we had forced schooling, an astonishing range of unlikely people knew reading was like Samson's locks, something that could help make them formidable, that could teach them their rights and how to defend those rights, could lead them towards self-determination, free from intimidation by experts. These same unlikely people knew that the power bestowed through reading could give them insight into the ways of the human heart so they would not be cheated or fooled so easily, and that it could provide an inexhaustible store of useful knowledge, advice on how to do just about anything. So being a reader, being someone who is largely self-taught in that way, using all of these resources which are available, the millions of books that we have, we have access to now, uh, which, which are available but so often unconsulted and unread, these are things, th this, this activity gives us, uh, opens up doors to us uh, and, and allows us, as he says here, not to be cheated or fooled so easily. And so th this goes back to what I said in the introduction, but talking about what, why is the situation the way it is now? Why is it that so many people seem to be so easily fooled? And why is it even, even more importantly, why is it that so many highly educated people are, are taken in by things that people who have less of an education or people that are more free thinking look at it and they go, well, this is, this is just stupid. This doesn't make any sense. But somebody with a, with a doctorate goes, oh, well, this, this, this makes sense to me. Well, and, and so, so what's causing this? And, and we'll get a little bit uh, deeper into this and, and where did this come from. One of the things that Gatto speaks about is the, the religious zeal of the educational reformers of the 19th and early 20th century to bring about progressive education. And it's that progressive education that led to these uh, horrific results over the past century, especially. He says this, he says, school is a religion. Without understanding the holy mission aspect, you're certain to misperceive what takes place as a result of human stupidity or venality or even class warfare. All are present in the equation. It's just that none of these matter very much. So, so yeah, there is human stupidity involved. There is venality involved. There is class warfare, warfare involved. But, but we can't lay uh, the responsibility at the feet of any one of these things. Uh, even without them, school would move in the same direction. And so he, he cites uh, John Dewey's pedagogic creed statement of 1897. Uh, John Dewey, one of the fathers of American education, a really American philosophy, pragmatic philosophy. And we'll, we'll hopefully hear more about John Dewey because uh, he, his, his pragmatism and the pragmatism of other American philosophers uh, has been very influential and continues to be influential in our modern society. So he says, Dewey's pedagogic creed statement of 1897 gives you a clue to the zeitgeist, to the spirit of the age. And Dewey said this, every teacher should realize 
He is a social servant set apart for the maintenance of the proper social order and the securing of the right social growth. In this way, the teacher is always the prophet of the true God and the usherer in of the true kingdom of heaven. So Gatto goes on to ask, what is proper social order? What does right, between quotation marks, social growth look like? If you don't know, you're like me, not... If you don't know, you're like me, not like John Dewey, who did, or the Rockefellers. The Rockefellers come back on the picture again. His patrons, who did too. Somehow, out of the industrial confusion which followed the Civil War, powerful men and dreamers became certain of what kind of social order America needed, one very like the British system we had escaped a hundred years earlier. This realization didn't arise as a public of, uh, product of public debate, as it should have in a democracy, but as a distillation of private discussion. Their ideas contradicted the original American charter, but that didn't disturb them. They had a stupendous goal in mind, the end of unpredictable history, its transformation into dependable order, order out of chaos. That's what uh, these educational experts, supported by the the large uh, and very powerful uh, non-profit or, or philanthropic organizations between quotation marks in the early 19th, uh, 19th uh, 20th century uh, these uh, progressive educational thinkers uh, changed the world of education with these utopian ideals in mind and so speaking about this the the religious aspect of this the religious purpose of modern schooling it was announced clearly, Gatto writes, by the legendary University of Wisconsin sociologist Edward A. Ross in 1901 in his famous book, Social Control. Uh, he says, your librarian should be able to locate a copy for you without much trouble. And in fact, I have found chapters of this book available online. Uh, in it, Ed Ross wrote these words for his prominent following. He said, uh, quoting Ed Ra Edward A. Ross from 1901, plans are underway to replace community family, and church with propaganda, education, and mass media. The state shakes loose from church, reaches out to school. People are only little plastic lumps of human dough. Social Control, this book by Edward Ross, revolutionized the discipline of sociology and had powerful effects on the other human sciences. In social science, it guided the direction of political science, economics, and psychology, in biology, it influenced, influenced genetics, eugenics. Again, another one of those big themes that comes back. Eugenics plays a role in this as well. And psychobiology. It played a critical role in the conception and design of molecular biology. And so Gatto says, there you have it in a nutshell. That's, that's basically, there's your, there's your answer. The whole problem with modern schooling. It rests on a nest of false premises. And as I've said before, you have a rotten root and you end up with rotten fruit. And that's exactly what we see. People are not, Gatto says very wisely, little plastic lumps of dough. They are not blank tablets, as John Locke said they were. They are not machines, as De La Maitre hoped. Not vegetables, as Friedrich Froebel, inventor of kindergartens, hypothesized. And we'll hear in a future episode more about kindergarten and about Friedrich Froebel. Uh, not organic mechanisms, as Wilhelm Wundt taught every psychology department in America at the turn of the century. Nor are they repertoires of behaviors, 
as Watson and Skinner wanted, B.F. Skinner, the famous behaviorist psychologist. They are not, as the new crop of systems thinkers would have it, mystically harmonious microsystems interlocking with grand macrosystems in a dance of atomic forces. I don't want to be crazy about this, he says. Locked in a lecture hall or a bull session, there's probably no more harm in these theories than reading too many Italian sonnets all at one sitting. But when each of these suppositions is sprung free to serve as a foundation for school experiments, it leads to frightfully oppressive practices. So continuing on with this religious aspect of the discussion and, and the, the religion of schooling and how, how education itself has become uh, a religious object or a religious ritual, we could say, a religious uh, practice. Gatto writes this, he says, true believers are only one component of American schooling as a fraction, probably a small one, but they constitute a tail that wags the dog because they possess a blueprint and access to policy machinery while most of the rest of us do not. So it's the true believers, it's the ideologues who hold the reins of power. The true believers we call great educators, Kamensky, Mather, Pestalozzi, Froebel, Mann, Dewey, Sears, Cubberley, Thorndike, et al., were ideologues looking for a religion to replace one they never had or had lost faith in. As an abstract type, men like this have been analyzed by some of the finest minds in the history of modern thought. Machiavelli, Tocqueville, Renan, William James, to name a few. But the clearest profile of the type was set down by Eric Hoffer, a one-time migrant farm worker who didn't learn to read until he was 15 years old. In his book, The True Believer, a luminous modern classic, Hoffer tells us this, and this is a quote from Eric Hoffer, Though ours is a godless age, it is the very opposite of irreligious. And this is a very important point, and it, it has, uh, has uh, importance in, in every part of the things that we speak about in this podcast, that, that it's, we, we don't live in an irreligious age. Uh, the true believer is everywhere on the march, shaping the world in his own image. Whether we line up with him or against him, it is well we should know all we can concerning his nature and potentialities, what he is capable of accomplishing. So where did these ideologues go for their, their sources? What, what were they going back to? What were they looking back to? What were they basing their, uh, their practices or their desired practices on? Well, a lot of it goes back to the Prussian school system. Prussia, the precursor of, of Germany, uh, a part of uh, Germany. Uh, Prussia was prepared to use bayonets on his own people as, ready, as readily as it wielded them against others. So it's not all that surprising that the human race got its first effective secular compulsion schooling out of Prussia in 1819. So we go back to the beginning of the 19th century, the same year that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was also published in England. School came after more than a decade of deliberations, commissions, testimony, and debate. Uh, for a brief, uh, hopeful moment, Humboldt's brilliant arguments for a high-level, no-holds-barred, free-swinging, universal, intellectual course of study for all, full of variety, free debate, rich experience, and personalized curricula, almost won the day. Uh, so Humboldt was one of, on one side of the argument in Prussia. 
and and he argued for a much more uh, liberated view of schooling and not uh, the regimented schooling that eventually did come out of Prussia. Uh, what a different world we would have had today if Humboldt had won the Prussian debate. But the forces backing Baron von Stein, the other side, won instead. And so those names, for our purposes are right now, are not that important, but it's the results that are really important for us in this discussion. And that, Gatto says, has made all the difference. The Prussian mind, which carried the day, held a clear idea of what centralized schooling should deliver. So a list of six things that come out of centralized schooling. What, what does society need? What does the country need? The country needs, first of all, obedient soldiers for the army. Secondly, obedient workers in mines and factories and farms. In the third place, well-subordinated civil servants trained in their functions. In the fourth place, well-subordinated clerks for industry, people who will listen, people who will obey, people who will submit to authority willingly, people who will follow the rules. Fifthly, citizens who thought alike on most issues. So they've been uh, put into uh, the herd. They've been put in lockstep with one another. They all think the same way. They all think along the same lines. And they don't, they don't disagree. Or if they do disagree, they don't speak about it. And finally, national uniformity in thought, word, and deed. The area of individual volition the idea that an individual has choice and will and that, that he can fulfill that will for commoners was severely foreclosed by Prussian psychological training procedures drawn from the experiences of animal husbandry and equestrian training and also taken from past military experience. So they're using the, the ideas behind the training of animals to train children. Much later in our own time, the techniques of these assorted crafts and sullen arts became discoveries, in quotation marks, in the pedagogical pseudoscience of psychological behaviorism. Prussian schools delivered everything they promised. Every important matter could now be confidently worked out in advance by leading families and institutional heads because well-schooled masses would concur with a minimum of opposition we have a population, in effect, that's easily manipulated, that's easily led where the elites of the society want to take them. Does that sound in any way familiar? Well, it sounds very familiar to me. And I think in large part, this answers our questions about the state of our society today. Of course, it doesn't answer all the questions, but it's one piece of the puzzle. And I think an important piece of the puzzle. So what happened with, with this uh, discovery of the Prussian education system by the American elites? Well, for the enlightened, enlightened classes, popular education after Prussia became a sacred cause, one meriting crusading zeal. 1868, Hungary announces compulsion schooling. 1869, Austria. 1872, the Prussian system was nationalized in all, to all the Germanies. 1874, Switzerland. 1877, Italy. 1878, Holland. 1879, Belgium. Between 1878 and 1882, France. School was made compulsory for British children in 1880. No serious voice, except the voice of Leo Tolstoy, questioned what was happening, and that Russian noble, nobleman, novelist, mystic was easily ignored. 
Best known to the modern reader for War and Peace, Tolstoy is equally penetrating in The Kingdom of God is Within You, in which he viewed such problems through the lens of Christianity. So this is, this is a very interesting history about how compulsory schooling uh, spread throughout Europe and from there spread to North America. The school movement was strongest in Western and Northern Europe, the ancient lands of the Protestant Reformation, much weaker in Catholic Central and Southern Europe, virtually non-existent at first in the Orthodox East. Enthusiasm for schooling is closely correlated with a nation's intensity in mechanical industry, and that closely correlated with its natural heritage of coal. And Gatto spends a lot of time speaking about the relationship between the development of the coal industry, the energy gained from coal, the Industrial Revolution, and the development of compulsory education. One result, he continues, passed over too quickly in historical accounts of school beginnings is the provision for a quasi-military non-commissioned officer corps of teachers and a staff-grade corps of administrators to oversee the mobilized children. One consequence unexpected by middle classes, though perhaps not so unexpected to intellectual elites, the ones who were forming and shaping this entire system, was a striking increase in gullibility among well-schooled masses. And we've spoken about this in an early episode of the podcast about Jacques Ellul's book, Propaganda. And Gatto speaks about Jacques Ellul several times in this book. And he says, Jacques Ellul is the most compelling analyst of this awful phenomenon in his canonical essay, Propaganda. He fingers schooling as an unparalleled propaganda instrument. If a school book prints it and a teacher affirms it, who is so bold as to demur? Who will speak against it? It's in the textbook. The teacher said it. The university said it. The school said it. How can we question any of these things? That, that's, that's the thinking. So this utopian kind of thinking, the dreams of the, the elites of society uh, lead to the development of compulsory schooling. And Gatto writes that administrative utopias spring out of the psychological emptiness which happens where firmly established communities are non-existent and what social cohesion there is is weak and undependable. So when society and the, the organisms, uh, the organizations within society are crumbling when they no longer have that influence anymore in society, we see this administrative utopia springing up. Utopias lurch into being, he continues, when utopia happens best, where there is no other social and political life around which seems attractive or even safe. The dream of state power refashioning countryside and people is powerful, especially compelling in times of insecurity, where local leadership is inadequate to create a satisfying social order, as must have seen the case in the waning decades of the 19th century. In particular, the growing intellectual classes began to resent their bondage to wealthy patrons, their lack of any truly meaningful function, their seeming overeducation for what responsibilities were available, their feelings of superfluousness, the fact that they weren't useful anymore. The larger national production grew on wheels and belts of, of steam power. The more it produced unprecedented surpluses, the greater became the number of intellectuals condemned to a parasitic role, and the more certain it became that some utopian experiment must come along to make work for those idle hands. They got to do something. So let's get this utopia moving, this 
uh, utopian ideal. And let's get, get our intellectuals who are, are, uh, don't have enough to do, let's get them working on this project. In such a climate, it could not have seemed out of line to the new army, army of homeless men whose work was only endless thinking to reorganize the entire world and to believe such a thing not impossible to attain. It was only a short trip before associations of intellectuals began to consider it their duty to reorganize the world. It was then that the clamor for universal forced schooling became strong. Such a need coincided with a corresponding need uh, on the part of business to train the population as consumers rather than independent producers. And so in the last third of the 19th century, a loud call for popular education arose from princes of industry, from comfortable clergy, professional humanists, and academic scientists, those who saw schooling as an instrument to achieve state and corporate purposes. We want to create an army of consumers. And we live in this consumer society, don't we? So we can look, we can look back to the, the developments of the late 19th and early 20th century, and we can see how that has propelled society more and more to become a mass of consumers with everything associated with that. And to be really, not to put too fine a point on it, to be a, a, a mindless mass of consumers, an unthinking mass or an unreflective mass of consumers. So administrative utopias, Gatto continues to write, are a, per- a particular kind or a peculiar kind of dreaming by those in power, driven by an urge to arrange the lives of others, organizing them for production, combat, or detention. The operating principles of administrative utopia are hierarchy, discipline, regimentation, strict order, rational planning, a geometrical environment, all straight lines, a production line, a cell block, and a form of welfareism. Government schools and some private schools pass such parameters with flying colors. They offer all of those things. In one sense, administrative utopias are laboratories for exploring the technology of subjection and as such belong to a precise subdivision of pornographic art, total surveillance and total control of the helpless. The aim and mode of administrative utopia is to bestow order and assistance on an unwilling population to provide its clothing and food, and in italics he writes, to schedule it. In a masterpiece of cosmic misjudgment, the phrenologist George Combe, and a phrenologist is someone uh, at that time uh, using, uh, employing one of the great scientific advances, measuring the shape of people's heads to discover whether they're going to be criminals or whether they're going to be successful or not, phrenology. George, George Combe, this uh, phrenologist, he wrote to Horace Mann, one of the, the founders of the American school system, November 14th, 1843, he said this, The Prussian and Saxon governments, by means of their schools and their just laws and rational public administration, are doing a good deal to bring their people into a rational and moral condition. Good job, guys. It's pretty obvious to thinking men that a few years more of this cultivation will lead to the development of free institutions in Germany. Well, a masterpiece of cosmic misjudgment? Certainly it was. So speaking again and continuing on this, this, uh, this theme of the managerial utopia, 
he goes, uh, Gatto goes to the modern day, uh, 1998, a letter written to the Atlantic Monthly. And one Walter Green of Hatboro, Pennsylvania, he protested the myth of our failing schools. And, uh, you know, you know, there's always uh, talk about how schools are failing, how kids are not getting educated properly and why that's so. Uh, and he, he, he protested this myth of failing schools, saying, no, our schools are not failing. And he did so on these grounds, uh, quoting his letter. We just happen to have the world's most productive workforce, the largest economy, the highest material standard of living, more Nobel Prizes than the rest of the world combined, the best system of higher education, the best high-tech medicine, and the strongest military. These things could not have been accomplished with second-rate systems of education. And I really like what Gatto says here, because I think his response to this letter and to this idea, uh, calling into question the myth of failing schools, I think his, his response is excellent. So Gatto writes in response, he says, on the contrary, the surprising truth is these things could not have been accomplished to the degree that they have been without second-rate systems of education. But here it is, writ plain, the crux of an unbearable paradox posed by scientifically efficient schooling. It works. School, as we have it, does build national wealth. It does lead to endless scientific advances. So where is Green's misstep? It lies in the equation of material prosperity and power with education when our affluence is built on schooling and on entrepreneurial freedom too, of course, for those libertarian enough to seize it. A century of relentless agitprop has thrown us off the scent. The truth is that America's unprecedented global power and spectacular material wealth are a direct product of a third-rate educational system upon whose inefficiency in developing intellect and character they depend. If we educated better, we, would not, we could not sustain the corporate utopia we have made. Schools build national wealth by tearing down personal sovereignty, morality, and family life. It was a trade-off. So they got exactly what they wanted. The elites of society, as they developed this compulsory schooling and the, the methods of compulsory schooling, they got what they wanted. A country, a wealthy country, where people uh, work in their jobs, where they're obedient, where they follow the rules, where they, they make good employees, where they're good worker bees in the hive. But that's not education, that's schooling. And that's an important distinction that Gatto makes. And I believe, especially for us, is when we think of, of our, our place in this world and we think with a biblical worldview, we need to really consider this about the difference between education and schooling and the purpose of education and why we have schools. Especially as Reformed Christians, we're, we're very much tied to our Christian schools. Uh, our parent-run schools. What's what's the purpose of these schools? What's the what's how are these schools uh, being run, and how are they being managed, and how are they set up? Are they using all of the same techniques that the world's schools are using, and if so, why? And what result might that be happening? Uh, might that be having in the church today? What kind of people are we producing? Uh, in our Christian schools, using the same methods that the world uses, uh, using the same, building on the same foundation, on the same presuppositions. And of course, 
where schools are are unfortunately tied to government curricula, we also need to think about not just about, about the format of the school, but we also need to think about the content of what's being taught and what kind of impact that's also having on the Christian church today. Not just people who, are, who send their kids to public school are being impacted by this, but it's the private school, it's the Christian school, which works on the same level, which works with the same presuppositions, which uh, works with the same ideology, which is also being molded and formed, not by the content, but by the form itself. So in conclusion, I just want to read this one final quote from the book. Faced with the problem of dangerous educated adults, what could be more natural than a factory to produce safely stupefied children? You've already seen that the positive system has only limited regard for brainy people, so nothing is lost productively in dumbing down and leveling the mass population, even providing a dose of the same for gifted and talented children. And much can be gained in social efficiency. What motive could be more humane, between quotation marks, than the wish to diffuse the social dynamite positive science was endlessly casting off as a byproduct of its success? To understand all this, you have to be willing to see that there is no known way to stop the social mutilation positive science leaves in its wake. Society must forcibly be adapted to accept its own continuing disintegration as a natural and inevitable thing and taught to recognize its own resistance as a form of pathology to be expunged. So if you're resisting being molded and being formed into this mass, this plastic mass, well, you're seen as being somewhat pathological. You're not fitting in. Why Why are you standing up? Why are you standing up against this? Why are you not just going with the flow? Why aren't you doing the same thing that everybody else is doing? Why are you questioning the so-called experts? Well, anybody who does that is seen as being a little bit odd, a little bit strange, tarred with a brush, uh, called names, uh, pushed off to the side, because you don't fit in with the mass which has been conditioned in this way through propaganda and through the educational system. Once an economic system, Gatto continues, becomes dependent on positive science, it can't allow any form of education to take root, which which might interrupt the constant accumulation of observations which produce the next scientific advance. In simple terms, what ordinary people call religious truth, liberty, free will, family values, the idea that life is not centrally about consumption or good physical health or getting rich, all these have to be strangled in the cause of progress. You see that? Life is not about consumption or good physical health. Well, good physical health has become the idol, the overwhelming idol over the past year and a half. Consumption has been an idol for, for decades. Uh, and getting rich always is, is always an idol. The, the, the God of mammon is always tempting human beings. But all of these other positive things, religious truth, liberty, free will, family values, the idea that life is not about these things, that has to be strangled in the cause of progress. What inures the positivistic soul to the agony it afflicts on others is its righteous certainty that these bad times will pass. Evolution will breed out of existence unfortunate unfortunates who can't tolerate this discipline. 
And so I'm going to conclude with this, this quotation from Gatto, which I think is excellent. This is the sacred narrative of modernity, its substitute for the message of the Nazarene. So we're looking at religious presuppositions guiding the decisions that are being made in shaping and molding society by, through, by means of, in this case, compulsory education. So when we think of all of the different branches, all of the different ways in which society is being formed, well, this is one of them. It's not the only one. So we can't say that the, the issues that we're dealing with today are strictly and solely caused by our educational system. That's, that's uh, really uh, minimalizing or minimizing uh, all of the other things that also contribute to it. And also, of course, we need to remember that uh, we live in a world of spiritual warfare and our battle is not against flesh and blood but it's against the powers and principalities and, and the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. So, so it's not just the historical outworkings of these things that cause, uh, that lead to the, the modern situation in which we have a society of followers, of people who don't think for themselves, of uh, where we lack independent thinking, where we have mass conformity, uh, to our detriment, and if it continues to happen and continues this this mass conformity continues uh, along the lines in which it is, uh, this is certainly going to have devastating results in our society as it already has. But this is just this is one uh, one branch. This is one of the one of the the roots that we've taken to get where we are today. And I'd like to, dis to, to continue this discussion on education uh, in future episodes. There's, there's much more that, uh, that I'd like to touch on. I'd like to touch on, uh, explore more the Prussian education system, the development of kindergarten and preschool, uh, which are two other uh, developments in the history of schooling, which have also uh, influenced Christian schools as well, as we also have our kindergartens and we have our preschools and, and we think of school as being uh, ne necessary for the socialization of children. All of these things we need to consider uh, and we need to examine our presuppositions and the way that we think about them. And we need to think about, okay, this compulsory schooling thing, we kind of take this for granted. But is it really such a good thing? Is it really such a positive thing? Is it really necessary? These are questions that we need to ask. And, and I hope uh, that this episode helped you to think about these questions and to perhaps lead to more questions uh, and, and some answers as we also seek answers, uh, as we seek to understand the spirit of the age, as we, speak to be, as we seek to be culturally literate and understand uh, why things are happening and, and how as I always say, and as Daniel 11.32 says, how we can stand firm and take action ourselves. So please, if you found this podcast helpful, uh, please do pass along the, the Rumble channel. Uh, please do pass along the uh, podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you find your podcasts. I've also begun to add the videos to BitChute, so it's going to be available on BitChute. I've, I've uploaded the first five episodes so far, and I hope to continue to upload them there as well to make it available to as many people as possible. Uh, as I said, 
if you find it helpful, please do share and please do pass it on because uh, my goal is to, to help as many people as possible in whatever small way that I can do that. May God bless you. And may he give you everything that you need to stand firm and take action. Until next time.